Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo U.S. Brand Manager. I'm here with Garrett Cousin. Garrett has 21 starts between World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic Games. He's a 2010 Olympian. His best individual World Cup finish was in ninth place in a skate sprint. Garrett has finished on the podium 17 times in Super Tour races, including eight wins. Garrett retired from ski racing in 2011. He started Lumi Experiences in 2016, which is the world's premier cross-country ski travel company. Garrett lives in Innsbruck, Austria. Thanks for being here, Garrett. Ian, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course, it's my pleasure. So let's start out by um, talking about where you grew up and how you started ski racing. You bet. Let's so, start uh, out by, by how you grew up and how you started ski racing, when you started ski racing. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And um, yeah, basically, uh, actually probably grew up more alpine skiing at, uh, at Highland Hills and uh, up in northern Wisconsin at Mount Asheville Bay. Um, it wasn't until, and did a little bit of cross-country skiing, I think like just about every kid in Minnesota does. Um, but it's not until watching the, uh, the 24, uh, sorry, 1994 Olympics in Lillehammer that uh, I actually saw ski jumping and thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. So I uh, joined the Minneapolis Ski Club the next winter. I think I was in sixth grade at the time. So uh, 10 or 11 and uh, tried, tried ski jumping and did ski jumping that first year at, at the Bush Lake jumps. And uh, yeah, tried uh, Nordic combined race actually and thought that was pretty cool. And the, the high school where I, where I went to school, Hopkins High School had a big um, cross country team. They had about 120 kids on the cross country ski team. So that's like what everybody did at school. And uh, I joined the, the Hopkins Nordic team thinking that that would help out my Nordic combined skiing and kind of fell in love with cross country. And it kind of turned out that you know, the, the Bush Lake jumps at Highland didn't have a chairlift or a rope tour or anything. So in a two hour night of jumping, you know, I'd hike to the top of the scaffolding from the bottom of the, you know, the 50 meter jump, I think, uh, four, maybe only five times in a night. And uh, that was a lot more work to me than cross country skiing. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do uh, straight cross country. It was easier than ski jumping. Cool. And when, when and with whom did you start racing? Uh, with the Hopkins ski team, really. So um, that would have been, I was, uh, yeah, seventh or eighth grade, 12 or 13 years old at the time and um, had, yeah, a, a big, a big program. Pat Lannon was the coach. He's kind of a legend in the Minnesota ski scene. He's coached a number of Olympians over the years and uh, Chris Ringsman, uh, another great coach. He's namesake of the uh, ringer role. Um, Randy Gibbs, he's a big wax tech. He was one of the coaches. So yeah, with, with the Hopkins high school team, basically. So how did you get from starting to ski for Hopkins to skiing for Middlebury? How did you, you know, did, did you do pretty well your last couple of years in high school? Tell us about that transition and how that went. Yeah, we had a really great core group of athletes, I would say, um, both men and women on the on the Hopkins team that you know on, on any given weekend you know we'd do high school races during the week and then we'd go do uh, junior national qualifiers on the weekend um, 
And I actually never, I only qualified for junior nationals once. I was a second year OJ. So I was, I would say a mediocre high school skier, but had a lot of fun um, with the team and ran cross country in the fall and whatever. And actually um, my junior year in high school decided I wanted a different experience. So I applied to be a foreign exchange student in Switzerland. So my, uh, my senior year in high school, I actually um, lived in Switzerland um, as a foreign exchange student and trained with the local club there in Bern and just loved being outside, hiking, running, biking, skiing. And I think through that experience, put in a pretty like epic base of, of training and didn't have maybe the pressures that you know, I normally might have felt. Um, so I have a question. Like Where did you Nordic school? ski when you were living in Bern? I did Nordic ski, yep. Where? Uh, the... Kondersteg actually was one oh, of my favorite places up in, yeah. the, up in the Berner Oberland. Yeah, it's such a beautiful place. Yeah, so we'd go to Andermatt, I guess, before that turned into a big development. And there's like a military camp there. And we'd, you know, spend the night in the barracks and then go ski train all day. I've done that. I've slept yeah. in the barracks and then did races in Andermatt. That's awesome. All right. Like, yeah, no, wonder, wonderful place and just like a super cool experience and that's where I learned German and kind of you know we will get to this later I'm sure but um, you know sort of long story how I ended up here in Austria so anyway um, when I was in Switzerland had a blast but realized I wasn't really ready to go to college yet so I talked to my high school guidance counselor and we ended up I ended up basically taking a second senior year at Hopkins and that was kind of the year that things you know for in domestic ski racing really started to click for me so um, we went out to US Nationals in uh, Bozeman it would have been 2001 I think and that was my first US Nationals had some great races considering where I guess I would have expected myself to be um, beat a bunch of college kids and that was essentially like sort of my jump into thinking okay maybe I could ski race in college and actually going into that race I thought I was going to go to University of Wisconsin Green Bay and ski with Brian Fish um, but coming out of that I ended up having a few more opportunities for colleges um, Middlebury was one of the schools I'd applied to so I that spring went to Middlebury Dartmouth UVM so how did you do at Junior National such that you got that much interest Pardon? How did you do specifically at Junior Nationals, which gave you uh, that much interest? This, this was Senior Nationals. Oh, Senior. And, and um, I'm, not, I'm not even sure. I, I didn't do well enough to qualify for World Juniors. And I want to say I was like the first alternate, which in 2002 was pretty cool because all of the alternates got to go be forerunners at the Olympics in Salt Lake City. So that was like my first experience skiing in Utah. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't honestly remember um, I'm just how I done in this national. Because you seem, from my perspective, and this, this, this matches what you're seeing because you were in Switzerland, but <clears throat> you seem to have come out completely out of nowhere. And the first time I saw you, I was thinking that guy skis differently. You, you've got a natural explosiveness and snap that most people never get in their, in their, they're not able to do. And so I noticed you early on and I didn't know where you came from, but you, the first time I noticed you, you were at a very high level already. So I was just curious about that. 
Yeah. Yep. No, I, I wouldn't say it was like a stellar junior career or whatever, but um, yeah, kind of, kind of hit. I would say that for the first time that year that I came back from Switzerland, I'd kind of figured things out and uh, took that momentum into into ski racing in Middlebury. So tell me about college. Not, we don't need to spend too much time on this, but college and, and after. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, basically spent four years uh, racing at Middlebury College. Um, we had, it was a pretty special team, I would say, at the time. Colin Rogers, Jake Whitcomb, um, you know, and a, a whole a whole other crew of athletes. But there was there was one point where five of the six skiers on the team on the men's team had all taken a year off at some point and lived either in Norway or Sweden or Switzerland. And so we were all like out for a ski one day and everybody was like talking in Norwegian. It was like this pretty neat little bond, I think that the team had. Um, and I think it was my sophomore year that we ended up winning um, the overall Eastern college title, which was the first time that UVM I think hadn't won that, race in like the, the overall Eastern college title in 20 years or something. So I think we had a, we had a pretty special program in college. Um, I got to run cross country and ski in Middlebury, which is a pretty unique opportunity. Terry Aldrich was the coach for both. And so it was one of the few colleges I think where you could do both of those. Um, yeah, it was a really nice experience. Um, and then was, Still, you know, didn't want to quit skiing after I graduated college. So this is an important thing you're going to talk about. So talk about the transition from college to not quitting and not quitting skiing and what you did after that point. Yeah. So um, it was the fall of 2005. I was in Yellowstone and I remember meeting uh, Yuri Gusa for the first time and Reed Luter introduced me and Yuri was uh, was talking about this dream of putting together a uh, an elite team based out of Hayward, Wisconsin, um, and I kind of continued that conversation with Yuri through that spring, and really liked the fact that his goal was to have I think six athletes on the team and have at least one of those athletes compete in the 2010 Olympic Games four years later. Um, and so I really liked that ambitious goal. And at the time, you know, there weren't really that many regional teams that you could choose from. There was, you know, the, the, I think it was the Fisher or the Subaru factory team at the time was kind of the big team, but all the athletes came from different parts of the country. And I really liked the idea of having like a core team that I could train with full time, um, which ended up being, yeah, in hindsight, a, a really unique opportunity, um, feel like that first generation of the CXC team kind of in some ways and I think probably APU to some extent was also part of this but we were really one of the first early clubs um, in the U.S. that really were able to kind of take off and get some momentum and now I look around and I'm you know I see the Stratton and Jim and um, the green green racing project and whatever. There's a lot of different clubs around the country that have kind of followed that model and seem to be pretty successful. The USSA, which is now called the USSS, is when more more or less switched from a program where, whenever someone really good came out of college and showed tons of promise, they would encourage them to move to Park City 
and, and try to get them to spend as much time in Park City and try to coach it themselves for the most part. That's what they're trying to do. Like, for example, um, Andrew Johnson and Chris Freeman at the time um, and more. And at, at some point shortly after, they switched to encouraging the clubs, more of a club-based national model. And CXC was one of the first clubs that embraced that. They weren't one of the first clubs, but they were one of the first clubs that embraced that as, as development all the way through as a senior. And if you look at the class of CXC skiers that you were part of on that team, you're looking at some big figures still, like Matt Leach with, with his, he's had great results over the years, but also with Pioneer Midwest and Store. It's been a big deal for the Midwest there. You've got Caitlin, used to be Compton, now Greg and Brian Gregg, Team Greg. She's won the Berkey five times, got a bronze in the, in the World Championships. Brian's uh, both of them Olympians and done very well for a long, long time. You've got Brian um, Cook, who worked for, had some very good results and worked for Solomon, and now he works for uh, Machus and does his great job and it is the industry. I love having him there. You've got um, some other athletes like such as yourself that achieved a very high level in a very short amount of time. On the, you also have, of course, Jesse Diggins. You've got Jenny Bender, um, number of national championships. And Jesse, of course, don't need to introduce her. My point is that that, that class is, is, was extremely successful and, and left a mark on the industry on the Midwest skiing scene on the industry for over a decade and, and counting afterwards. We're gonna come back to this, but um, I just wanna point out that, that having that CXC elite team coached by Brian Fish and then by Jason Cork had a, made a huge mark on the Midwest. It created a legacy really that we're still siphoning off of, I think. Totally. No, I can't, I can't say enough about the, the team and about Brian Fish and his ability to kind of bring everybody together. And I think he was, he's a, he's a, such a student of the sport, I would say. Um, I'm so impressed with how he, yeah, he's, he's reading the physiological papers and putting together the tests and is, is very meticulous with how he puts together his training plans. Um, and yet he's also, you know, he has sort of this, this feel for athletes and knows what you might need, what you might not need. I think early on with the uh, CXC team, I remember him having comments that like, he felt like, you know, at first he expected to have to push the athletes to train harder. And I think in the end, he realized there was so much motivation sort of internally from the athletes on this team that he actually had to sort of rein us back in maybe for, to make sure that we didn't train too, too much. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Brian, Brian did a great job there. Um, all the athletes on the team, I would add Laura Vallis actually, who I think raced world championships that first year. And then Maria Stuber, who uh, is now kind of launched the women's Nordic Ski Coaches Association yep. Foundation. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And of course, Laura won nationals a bunch of times as well in world championships. I mean, yep. they, they, the, the legacy that, that team created still exists. It, it's amazing. So let's talk about uh, you for a second more. You raced World Cups for just three seasons total. <clears throat> in, um, in 2010, you only did two World Cup races plus the Olympics. So you could almost even call it two seasons in a little bit. 
but let's call it three seasons. And then you retired when you were 28, I think. Is yeah. that the right? Yeah, plus or, plus or minus, yeah. I think it was year 28. My point is your World Cup career was very short, despite you being a shooting star for the team. You had 17 Super Tour wins, and you had a ninth place in a World Cup, um, and many other top finishes, really good finishes. What was your motivation to retire at the time? That, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, at the time, I thought that 28 was pretty old, and there were other things to do in life. Um, you know, I, uh, when, I, when I joined the CXC team, it was 2006, and I had a, a plan, essentially, of, you know, wanting to race Continental Cups in the winter of 2007, World Cup winter of 2008, World Championships winter of 2009, and then Olympic Games in 2010. And it may sound easy, and there's obviously a lot of work that went into that, um, but I achieved each of those goals along the way. And I'm not really sure that I had another goal beyond, you know, competing in the Olympics other than you know, getting an Olympic podium. And I felt like there was such a big gap between where I was at the time and, you know, what an Olympic podium would have looked like, especially, you know, in four years, let alone, you know, eight or whatever, that um, I think I was ready to, to move on in life at that point. And, and yeah, happy with that decision at this point. I realize life is not just about ski racing. And you're also talking to a person, me, who retired more or less at the top of his career, also at a similar age. I think I retired when I was 26. I, maybe I just turned 27. But I was at the best top of my career. So I, I respect and understand why a person might want to retire at that time of life, you know. Having said that, I want to talk about US men's distance racing. And Although we've done very well, we're not as good in distance as we are in sprint on average. You know, let's say for your time, yeah, Chris Freeman had some great races, but for the most part, Chris Cook, Torn Coos, Andy Newell, were, and, and yourself in sprints, for example, <clears throat> were quite regularly in the top 10. And in distance, outside of Chris Freeman, there was a long period where there were zero top 10s. Noah Hoffman got one a little bit later. And then more recently, we've had some. But um, so... The question is, I'm going to ask you a question, then we're going to discuss a little bit more, but the question is, what do you think that we're lacking in distance as compared to sprint to work to break into the top 10? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I'm not sure that I can, you know, answer it, especially not for right now. You know, what I'm not, I'm so far removed from what the team is doing and what, uh, what Grover and, and Fish and Whitcomb are working on that I, I couldn't say. Years. Yeah, but at, at the time, I, I think you actually called it out there, um, you know, talking about Newell and, and Chris Cook and Torin Coos. I think that Grover actually came on the team originally as a sprint coach, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And I think that they figured out some kind of formula that worked for training for sprinting. And to, to your point earlier about the work that uh, US Ski and Snowboard did with the clubs, I think Grover was in a lot of communication with Fish at the time. And so we were, you know, Chris Freeman, I think his training was so different um, that 
when we were doing camps and stuff together, Brian was talking a lot to Grover and figuring out, you know, and we were using essentially their training to some extent as a template. Obviously we were modifying that a lot, but I think that there is something that, you know, we had figured out at that point as a country, we, I, I talk about the coaches primarily having figured something out. And, you know, when I look North at that time to what was going on in Canada and you had, you know, Babakov and, and Alex Harvey, and you had a crew that really had kind of figured out the distance game to some extent. And I think there, from my perspective, there is a lot to be said for a group of athletes working together, but also having sort of a, a training plan fig that's figured out that works for that particular generation. And I'm not saying that what worked for us at the time in sprinting would work for anybody anymore, but I think at that point in time, um, we were fortunate to have figured that out. And, you know, I would consider myself, would have in college considered myself a distance skier because yeah. I never trained for sprints at all. But when we do lactate testing, I didn't really have that much trouble pushing a lactate of 18 or 19 millimoles on a hard sprint interval. So I think to some extent, yeah, I did have a little bit of a, a sprint tendency um, that helped that helped things out for me with sprinting a little bit. But I think by and large, um, it's it's figuring out that template and then it's disseminating that to to people. And I, when I look at U.S. skiing now, I'm pretty excited by what I see um, from the juniors and the the teamwork coordination um, all across the board. I think some of the stuff that they're doing with U.S.S.A level 200 coaches training. I think that coaches all over the country are really like using a pretty common language when it comes to training. And, and I think everybody's being pretty smart about it. So if there's anybody watching this video who hasn't done USSA level 200 training, I think if, if everybody, if every coach in the country did that training, I think that is a good enough base to be able to coach an Olympian. So let me, let me, let me ask you, let me build on this. Yeah. I asked David Norris the same question and he commented that it, because it takes so much longer for an athlete to achieve a high level in distance due to a need to absorb the training over more years, he thinks that many quit before they achieve their potential. It seems to me that you absolutely fit in this category, which is one reason I keep bringing it up. You finished 33rd and 34th in distance races with very relatively little time at the elite level. Your time back was superb. You know, you, you, were, you were right in there. I think most would say that with more time training and racing, you would have broken into the red group as a regular. If I talked with Keegan Randall the other day, and she talked about the road between making the, her first Olympic team in 2002 and then um, the point where she knew that she could win the Sprint World Cup and be competitive in distance racing regularly. Yep. And what happened there? And she talked yeah. about the 10-year plan that she made, which yep. sounded very similar to your three- or four-year plan, your four-year plan, except hers was 10. Yep. And her 10-year plan was very forgiving to herself and very patient, unlike your four-year plan. And...
Um, four years into her tenure plan, she was last place in a World Cup race yep. and discouraged. Four years into your four-year plan, you were ninth in a, actually three years, I think, in your four-year plan, you were ninth in a World Cup race. This is kind of eye-opening. What I'm saying is, I think with a 10-year plan, you clearly could have been on a podium regularly based on this concept of needing to absorb training, needing to become stronger. In cross-country skiing, you don't get strong, like real strong in a year. You need to stress your tendons, stress your muscles over, and have an actual adaptation to that training over the years of that training. And it seems to me you're, um, you're a generational talent. And based on your incredibly quick improvement all the way up to a ninth place in an individual World Cup race, I think that after listening to Keegan carefully, I think that um, you could have maybe podiumed in a six-year plan <laughs> or a seven-year <laughs> plan, even as compared to a 10-year plan. But that's one reason I wanted to bring this up with you specifically, because I, it seems to me that a lot of us discount the, the training effect that transforms, like cross-country skiers are super superhumans. We are different from every other person on the planet. You know, there's some mountain runners and some swimmers and some, you know, some good riders or whatever, but for the most part, we're different. Because of the training we do, we adapt over the years and then we've become a superhuman in any sport we want to do, honestly. You know, we just pick skiing. And um, I think you're one of them. You know, you're an elite athlete and super talented. So I just wanted to explore that with you. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, appreciate, I appreciate the compliments. Um, yeah, I think there, there is something to be said for, for having that 10-year plan. And, um, you know, if, if, if you can... You know, if there probably are ways to make it work financially, obviously that's like that's a big hurdle, and staying motivated over that time, and uh, you know, starting that ten-year plan as an eighteen-year-old, you're twenty-eight when you hit the end of that ten-year plan. Starting that ten-year plan as a twenty-three-year-old, you're all of a sudden thirty-three by the end of that. Um, yeah, I, I think there is a lot to be said there, but at the same time, I. Uh, you know, what, what the ninth place result doesn't tell is, is two days prior, I was dead last in, uh, in a 30K pursuit. And I want to say that first winter in, in Europe, I was like the last one to come through the stadium before they, you know, they, 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 uh, they closed off and, and cut off everybody behind me in a few pursuit races. So there was definitely like three or four races there where, where I was basically dead last in the World Cup. And Living here in Europe now and, and having a few more friends on the on the European World Cup scene, um, Max Olex, for example, who races for the German national team and used to race for UAF is one example. There's, I, th I think I see the Europeans as being able to be very specialized in a specific World Cup event. Max is a skate sprinter and so he'll live in Garmisch and do his own training most of the winter and then he'll just go to the specific skate sprint world cups, you know, whether that's Dresden or, um, or Switzerland or, Davos. you know, whatever Davos. Um, I think European athletes and countries are very much, are, are much more specialized in the races that they're choosing to do for each athlete. And I think when I was in Europe, I thought, Oh, I'll, I'll get as many world cup bibs as I can collect while I'm over here. Um, and maybe, you know, I'll, I'll pop a good one, so to speak, and have a good, have a good race. But 
I think there is something to be said for kind of knowing what your event is, specializing in that event. And if you, if you're not doing that as a world cup athlete, going into it with that expectation and saying, okay, Garrett, like you're going to go do this, this 30 K pursuit, but it, it might not go as well as that skate sprint did. Um, Remember Keegan was obviously much better in skate and in, uh, in sprint than in distance and much better in skate than in classic. She podiums in a distance classic race on the podium. Yep. She was last in a distance race four years into her plan. Uh, what, uh, what I'm saying is you, for example, are a generational athlete, in my opinion, and I think you're possibly equally talented. I think you're more talented in distance, although your best results were better in sprint. I think you're more talented, talented in distance. And I think that you could have been on the podium in distance easily in the red group on a regular basis if you had stayed with it for four more years, especially looking at Keegan's experience and how, how hard she, – she started a spreadsheet and she marred her results with fist points, time back, like all the different angles where you can kind of find something positive. Mm -hmm. And she needed to do that because she didn't feel like she was improving at all. <laughs> it was like, man, because I got last in this race. And yeah. you know, yeah. here I am talking about Olympic gold or Olympic you know, podium uh, goals. And I'm getting last in a race four years in. And you know, I'm down in the dumps. But then you look, you know, she was graphing everything, looking through everything. And then she could see actual very gradual improvement. Yep. And that gradual improvement continued over the years. And then some years in, she'd get a, you know, a, a, um, a flyer result, which was on the upside, like you're ninth. Yep. But then that became normal three years later. That yep. was normal and so on. Yep. Anyway, yep. the only reason I'm bringing this up isn't to beat you up. I, I did the same thing as you and I have no regrets. But rather, that's one of the questions that keeps coming up is, why are the U.S. men, well, we have great distance skiers, and we've had, if you look at percent back, we've had some amazing distance races. Most people, for some reason, haven't been celebrating them, mm -hmm. but uh, Norris was 16th, uh, and his time back was as good as some of the races we've ever had. Scott yep. Patterson was 10th and 11th in 50Ks, Holman yep. Cole, as well as uh, Olympics, and his time back was nothing. Those are some of the best results we ever had as a country, period. And of course, yep. Chris Freeman and some other results. Having said that, though, we we could do better in we're better in spin on average than we are in distance and it I think I'm just want to underline David Morris uh, Norris's point because we've lost for example yourself we've lost Ben Lusgarden Kyle Bradrud these are people that could regularly have been in the red group if they'd and all of them retired around 28 Kyle Bradrud uh, was 24th or sixth in the year he retired in a distance World Cup mm -hmm. his best result. And he had been only a few years on the World Cup, you know, very regular, you know, rarely. So yep. I think he had 17 starts. So yep. something like that. So I just want to break this point because I think it's a hopeful message and it's a realistic message. Absolutely. 100%. And, and it's, that, that's great to hear. And it, it is possible. And I think we've seen, you know, I don't know that I had a whole lot of people to look up to in 20. 11 when I was making that decision for, you know, regarding those results, but, you know, thinking about what's happened in the U S from between 2011 and now, um, I think it's a lot easier to see that path to success, whether that's distance or sprint or, 
or whatever. Um, so yeah, definitely props to props to the team, the coaches. I mean, it's, it's neat to see, you know, the, the coaches at a high level stick with it for so long too. And I, I think that there is um, a lot of internal knowledge that, that exists now in the U S that didn't exist, you know, 10 or 15 years ago um, on the coaching front too. So it hasn't been that long. I know it seems like a long time, but you retired in 2011. We've, we've made some strides since then. But one thing that's been going on starting about when you retired is a talent drain in the Midwest, which existed before you retired, before CXC started. And then after you retired, when CXC stopped being an elite team, it started again. Mm-hmm. What happened is people, you have very many talented juniors in the Midwest. And they, they graduate from junior racing, go to college, skiing college somewhere. And then they generally go somewhere else if they're talented and want to continue to pursue ski racing. At your time, it was generally Green Racing Project, Stratton, or APU. Mm-hmm. Since then, BSF, Bridger Ski Foundation, and Sun Valley have kind of popped up. But for the most part, it's one of those few programs. There isn't any, not one elite ski racing program in the entire Midwest, which is odd. And Kyle Pratt commented, for example, when he was on the Stratton team, half the team was from the Midwest. Yeah. Like Jesse Diggins, for example, or, or um, Ben Saxton, for example. There's plenty of them. And it's the same yeah. with APU. Like Rosie Frankowski's at APU. You've got Kevin Bolger in Sun Valley. You've got some, some uh, Hannah Rudd, for example, and BSF, the, 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 um, what are they called now, BSF Pro Team. Yep. You come from the Twin Cities. LNR is a massive club, and I know they're, they've been trying to figure out how to figure this out, but don't you think that would make a huge, huge impact for Midwestern junior skiers to have elite skiers in the Twin Cities to chase around and to emulate? Absolutely. No question. No question. And uh, it's funny, you know, I was, I was back in Minneapolis for the uh, Minneapolis World Cup this March, and it was really cool to see Kaylin Gregg out there. And I think there are people that kids in the Midwest can, can look up to and, and learn from. And I think that the Lopet Foundation elite team is fantastic. And just the whole program in general at the Lopet is pretty neat. So in the Midwest, you've got Matt Leach, You've got Caitlin yep. Gregg and you've got Brian, Brian Gregg. And all three of them are fantastic mentors. Uh, Caitlin and Brian spend tons of time with the juniors as well. You have that. But you don't have a team necessarily. I mean, they have a child. Brian's working full-time now. Caitlin is coaching, which is great. Yep. But you don't have anything comparable to an actual team, an elite team. Yep. Um, both Rick Capala and Sverry Caldwell spoke recently about how important the bottom to top programming is, where, which would match a German or especially a Norwegian or Scandinavian club where you've got a kid chasing around an elite junior who's chasing around an elite senior. You know, you have World Cup champions, they're being chased around by World Junior champions, and the kid like grows up in the same street as the internationally successful racer, and that, that internationally successful racer had that same coach that the junior had when he was a junior. The same yeah. programming, the same training plan, philosophy, the same strength program that might have been tweaked, but, you know, more or less. The same foods being eaten, you know, the same culture. And so those kids growing up know they have a pathway to international excellence because it's right in front of their nose. And we have lacked that in many 
areas of this country, especially Midwest, since CXC stopped, we've lacked that dramatically. And yeah, Caitlin and Brian and, and Matt are fantastic, but you don't have, for example, at Stratton, Sperry was talking about juniors doing hill bounding repeats, and they would start higher on the hill than the elite Stratton skiers, like Jesse and Simi and so on. And the Stratton skiers would pass them on their hill bounding, and the juniors would try to mimic their technique and stay with them. And then in the recovery, the, the elite skiers would have to run farther down the hill to start again. Can you think of a better opportunity than that? And the coach doesn't have to coach technique, doesn't have to try to motivate anybody. It's a, it's a, it's a carrot in front of a rabbit in front of a greyhound. You know, I mean, if you're a racer, you're in and you're, and I think the Midwest is sorely lacking in this. And you grew up in, an, in, a, in a generation where you didn't have it at all. And then you were part of it and then it was gone. So I thought, I thought you'd have an interesting perspective on this. Yeah, you know, I, I, wish, uh, I wish I maybe had more of a perspective. I totally agree that, that it, having the CXC elite team um, was, was huge at the time. And you talk, you know, I, I forgot even about, about Kevin Bolger. I think, you know, Jesse Diggins obviously gets thrown in that mix a lot because I remember there's times when she was chasing around Caitlin Gregg um, at training camps when Jesse was a junior. But I remember one of our first training camps in Monaco, we, Kevin Bolger as a, as a junior skier. And then Adam Martin, I want to say, was at some of the CXC camps and, and um, Ben Saxton, you know, when, when we were doing REG camps. So yeah, there is a big crew of juniors from the Midwest that when I was there as an athlete were very much a part of our training camps or, you know, that we would interact with Nicole Bath actually too, who's on the British yep. uh, national team. Um, but I don't, I, I can't really speak to what happened once I sort of retired. It was a pretty hard cut for me when I moved to Vermont um, in 2011. Um, so I'm not really sure like what's, what's happened there and is there an opportunity? Absolutely. Um, you know, whether that's in Marquette or Hayward or Minneapolis. LNR. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, is, you could talk about the geography, you know, I, I live right here in the Alps now I can walk out my door and go for a three hour uphill run and then take a gondola right back down and be home in, in 20 minutes. Um, I'm, I'm, confident that you don't necessarily need much more elevation than there is in Minneapolis to be a successful racer, especially if you can get a couple of camps um, in mountainous places throughout the year. Um, but yeah, maybe it, maybe it is simply the, the initiative or, or somebody with the foresight like what, what Yuri had in, in 2006 to really create that spark. Um, I know Sverry did that. I know, uh, um, Eric Flora up in, in APU seems to have that same program. So yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah Let's there's, there's a possible, there's opportunity. No question. Let's shift gears and talk about um, a favorite race that you might've done. The idea that brought great emotional memories. Just, just, that's always fun to hear that. Yeah, totally. You know, I think that that, uh, that ninth place skate sprint, um, we, it's, it's one that, that comes up often. And I, I think it is a pretty special weekend for me. Um, it was my first World Cup um, 
experience ever. It was domestic. And so I had qualified through some sort of, you know, domestic, I guess it was North American. So I'd qualified as part of the nation's group. Um, and it was essentially a three race series up in Canmore. So the, the first race was a pursuit. And I think I mentioned earlier, I kind of got blown out of the water there, finished dead last. Um, but I needed to get a sub, was it sub 60 point fist race at the time? I think nowadays pretty much everybody in the US probably has a sub 60 point fist race. But at the time, in order to race a European World Cup distance, you needed to have sub 60. And I had won the, um, or was leading the Super Tour at the time. So I had the start rights to the World Cup races the rest of that winter, but I needed to have the sub 60. And so I didn't get it the first day. The next day was a 15K skate. And uh, I think to your point, I think I was something like 33rd or 34th there and had a 29 point race. So essentially half of what I needed and that race by, by having that result, I was then able to essentially, you know, book my plane tickets for the rest of the winter racing world cup in Europe, which was pretty neat. Um, and so I feel like that day I'd gotten a whole bunch of pressure off my shoulders and the next morning was the, uh, the skate sprint. And, um, yeah, I, I think at that point I didn't really have any pressure, um, knew that my skis were fast and was feeling strong. I want to say I was just so wired from the really good, 15k the day before that I didn't get much if any sleep that night I remember like you know looking at my clock at four o'clock in the morning and thinking wow I haven't fallen asleep yet but knowing that like I'm, I'm feeling fit I'm feeling good woke up the next day and I remember uh rooming actually with Leif Zimmerman and we were uh you know we were packing up to go and uh Leif asked me something about you know if I was going to come back to the hotel afterwards and then go back to watch the the finals or if I was just going to stay up at the venue to watch the finals and I like distinctly remember thinking like oh no I'm I'm packing two race suits and like I'm I'm doing the qualifier in the morning and I'm racing the finals in the afternoon and like hadn't even thought about the possibility that maybe I wouldn't be doing that and so um yeah, it was, it was like, I feel like that kind of clicked that that's how the day started. And uh, yeah, I think I ended up qualifying 29th, beat Petter Nortu, which at the time I thought was like the coolest thing to qualify for the sprint final when he hadn't. Um, and yeah, remember like all of a sudden being in like the athlete room where you have the top 30 athletes getting ready for that sprint that afternoon realizing like, Whoa, I'm, I'm here. Like this is, this is yeah. really it. And, um, yeah, the quarterfinal, I remember specifically at the start of that race, putting my poles out in front of the wand because that's how all distance races start. You know, you, you trip that wand, but this is at a time where that wand, like it was more like a BMX race where like the wand swings open and allow, or like a horse race where the wand swings open and allows you to take off. And so 
I thought that the wand literally like broke both of my poles as I was taking off because it, it's, it's, you know, I had my poles on the wrong side of it and knocked, knocked them out. So I started out like kind of way behind everybody and, and figured like, okay, whatever, like I'm in sixth, like I'll just catch up to the group. I'll try to hang on. We'll see what happens. And this particular course was really short. So, sorry, this is the quarterfinal or semifinal? This is the quarterfinal. This is like my first, yeah, yeah quarterfinal. Okay. So um, I'm like hanging on to the back of the group, but it's a, it's probably a 1.2 kilometer, really flat, really fast. And sure enough, I'm like right on the back of this group. And all of a sudden there's like this hairpin 180 degree corner before a 200 meter straight into the finish, maybe 300. It was a long straight. And everybody I think came into that corner super hot and went out really wide and because i was last i was able to take a perfect line through the corner and came out like on the far right hand side everybody else was like bunched up to my left and mm. like basically just had this like clear straight shot to victory all the way down the uh the, the last 300 meter stretch and uh, stayed in my talk and have no idea what happened with the other five people to my left and just raced as fast as I could. Um, don't even remember like looking at the line, what happened, but somehow I, I don't even know, maybe I was lucky loser. Maybe I was second regardless, made it from there into the semi. Um, this time I was smart enough to, you know, not start with my poles in front of the wand, had a good start. At some point, one of the, I think there was like four Russians in that heat. It was like me, four Russians, and somebody else. Phil Bowen has a great shot of this somewhere. And um, one of the Russians had fallen. And I was like, I'm just going to do the same thing I did the time before. And it worked. And uh, yeah, came in basically the same thing straight shot to the line. And I think I knew that I was like probably third or fourth at that point. And so I kind of stood up going across the finish line and see this boot like coming across from behind me. And it's Vasily Rochev, who's like in fifth and he's like stretched out as far as he can go. And I'm just like standing up across the line. Turns out that we were a photo finish for, um, for fourth, but we were also the fastest heat. So he ended up by just a hair getting me. Um, so he moved on to the final. I ended up like it, it was it actually had to be reviewed for like 20 minutes. I didn't know if I was going to be moving on or not. In the end, I made it into the uh, B final and finished third in the B final. I'm pretty confident with how I felt that day, how fast my skis were going that had it, you know, had I just put out my ski like, you know, a half an inch um, ahead of Vasily's, I would have, I would have ended up uh, moving on to the A final, and there's no doubt in my mind I would have been top three in the A final, just based off of how I was feeling that day. But in the end, it's it's still my best World Cup result ever. Uh, that got me onto the U.S. ski team. I crossed the line, and I think I had to get top ten that in a domestic World Cup to be named to the U.S. ski team as like part of their official criteria. Um, no questions asked, you know, so I basically crossed the finish line. I remember Chris Grover coming up, shaking my hand and saying, Garrett, welcome to the U.S. ski team. <laughs> so that was, that was a pretty neat day and kicked off a, you know, a little bit of a World Cup career after that. But 
just for the record, I know I've kind of beat this horse there, but you had 21 World Cup starts world, between World Cup um, Olympics and World Championship, 21 starts. Okay. How many skate sprint starts do you think you had? So within the realm of World Cup, how many skate sprints? That's a good question. Like three, um, maybe two, three? I'm trying to think of where they would have been. A lot of classic, there was a lot of classic World Cup sprints. The only point I'm making is, what are you, you were ninth and possibly third, you know, in your, in your estimation of how you yep. were doing, yep. out of what, two opportunities? Yeah, I think Lockheed actually was maybe the only other one. Yeah, so my point is, yeah. um, yeah. That's, those are pretty good odds, you know? Yeah, no doubt, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Maybe you're yep. better than you're giving yourself credit for. Totally. Well, thanks. Okay. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate that. So let's go to uh, another question I have that I think might be interesting. You raced the Engadine Ski Marathon. There aren't that many Americans that have raced the Engadine Ski Marathon, especially elite Americans. You've yep. also raced the American Burkett Run, and I believe only one time in your life. That's true. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yep. And you weren't, you weren't as elite when you raced the American Burkabunner as you were when you raced the Engadine. But regardless, you had a good feel for the scene and, you know, you were up front pretty well and so on. These yeah. are both massive events. Um, yeah. The Engadine clearly has a deeper field, especially on the men's side than the Berkey. Yeah. But outside of this, can you contrast the races and just comment on the Engadine versus the Berkey in your experience? Absolutely. That's a, that's a fantastic question. I actually think it, it's really interesting because those two races almost like, to some extent, bookend my professional ski career. So the only Berkey that I've ever done was, uh, it must have been 2007. It was a shortened Berkey. So it started at Telemark and it finished at double O. Um, and it was, yeah, my, my first yeah, Berkey experience. I, uh, I distinctly, distinctly remember Kate Whitcomb winning that race. Um, Kate was one of my teammates in college and thinking like, okay, yeah, this is for real. Um, like, you know, it's, it's a possibility. I want to say I was maybe top 20 plus or minus, um, for whatever reason had, you know, a, a mediocre day that day at best. Um, but it's a, it's a neat experience, you know, starting up on the line, I was living in Hayward at the time. So, you know, to just get in my truck and drive 10 minutes to the start and then do this race, um, was a neat experience. And then the Ingadine, and I've been there and raced it on several, I've actually done more Ingadines than I have Berkeys, but the Ingadine maybe that's most memorable for me was in 2011. And it was basically the last race of my ski career. Um, I think the reason that I didn't do more Berkeys is because Berkey always overlaps with world championships or Olympics. So the next three years, the three or four years when I was at CXC, I didn't really have the opportunity to do more Berkeys. The last year when I actually was there to do the Berkey, uh, 2011, um, I woke up two or three nights before the race with a really bad stomach ache. Um, Brian and Caitlin were actually roommates of mine, but I didn't want to bother them because I wanted them to have, you know, the best preparation for their race. So I drove myself to the hospital at five in the morning and within an hour and a half, they had cut my appendix out because I had appendicitis two nights before, which in hindsight, I actually feel 
pretty good about because it was a really cold Berkey. And I think there were a lot of people that ended up in the ER that year after the Berkey with frostbite and uh, whatever. So uh, if there was a Berkey to miss, that probably wasn't a bad one. Um, two weeks after the Berkey is the Ingadine every year, like the second, second weekend in March. And I was helping Yuri and CXC because I'd spent time in Switzerland, knew my way around, spoke the language, um, was helping them run sort of a fundraiser trip with a couple of CXC supporters. So I was essentially me and three or four um, CXC supporters at the time. And I remember in flying over there, I couldn't carry my ski bag on my right side because my abs were still torn up from this appendicitis. And uh, basically, like, spent two or three days doing some easy skis with them, waxed skis for the whole group, and kind of just thought, okay, I'll put my skis on and go do the Ingadine, um, see what happens. And ended up, like, must have been some kind of crazy peak because I felt like a million bucks that morning, had really fast skis, and ended up essentially, like, at the beginning of the pack. Um, so you were able to start up front. I was able to start up front, yeah, with Olympic credentials and whatever. So I was literally like on the front of the line. And then the Ingadine is 15 kilometers of lake, completely flat. And then all of a sudden, right before you hit San Moritz, you have this really steep hill that for most masters just turns into this mess of people trying to get up in these like semi-organized lines, but then other people taking off their skis and trying to run between the lines and breaking poles. And it's, it's kind of a disaster. But anyway, you then you ski, you know, you have some hills and then essentially it's, it's more or less flat, like the last third of the race, flat to like gradual climb. And usually most years it's a big pack that sticks together. The past couple of years, I think it's been, you know, it's, it's a 42K, race and I want to say the winners are doing it in like an hour 15 to an hour 20. I mean, screaming fast. So we go across this lake. I'm feeling good. I remember Ben Hughesby telling me a couple of weeks prior when he found out I was going to do this race that uh, just to be one of the top three when you get to that first climb so that you get a clear shot up it. And I wasn't really thinking about it until I was actually there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm in third place right now. And like one skier goes to one side, the other one goes to the other side. And like, there I am cruising up the hill. And turns out there's a preem like right after that. So like a thousand euro bonus. And the guy in front of me kind of takes off. And so I just tuck in behind him and I'm doing this little tuck skate. Turns out that's Remo Fisher who ends up winning that race pulling away from the field and I think it's like the only year that somebody's won by more than like you know I think he won it by like three or four minutes that year he pulled away and so I was essentially with Remo at some point though we hit the woods and yeah. my skis say, slowed down. Let me just say usually the Engadine you've got in the men's field you get 10 people within two and a half seconds. That's exactly. Average. Exactly. So that's yeah. really remarkable. Okay. It's, it's a 42 kilometer sprint race basically. Yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. Back here. Yep, totally. No, so, uh, so yeah, ended up like essentially making the break, but skis slowed down going through the woods and, uh, and my abs and body just weren't keeping up that day. So I, I ended up falling back a bit, but it was, it was a super unique experience. 
I think it's 14,000 people that show up to that race. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of Swiss, you know, Swiss punctuality at its best. You take a train to the start with all of these people and you go do the race and then you have the, you know, probably 30 military trucks that you th toss your, uh, you know, your race backpack into and then they have everything waiting for you when you, when you get to the finish. Um, essentially also at like a military barracks and they've got bands playing and it's, it's a really fun experience at the, at the end of the Engadine. So I can't say I've, I've ever skied down main street in Hayward, so I can't really contrast it to, uh, to the Berkey, but it's a, it's a special race. The Engadine. Any other thoughts about like the size of the event? Is there, is one easier to manage? The Engadine is bigger than the Berkey, but uh, in terms of logistics and all that, they're both famously difficult. Yeah, they're both challenging races and maybe uh, difficult, but I think, you know, they're, they're both such a um, unique part of their own country's culture. Oh yeah. So, you know, in, in, uh, Hayward, you're getting onto these big yellow school buses. And I think as a, as a foreigner who's never seen school buses in the US before, other than in pictures, like to be able to pile onto a school bus is like, it's really cool. Um, and you have people sleeping on the cafeteria floor in Hayward High School. You have uh, the expo the night before. And um, with the Ingadine, it's it's actually fairly similar. You have the big expo in sort of this wellness area um, right outside of, of San Moritz. You have public transportation, so you're getting on these classic Swiss red tra trains and, and going Which through the store. Crazy but also, that's crazy what's, unique. That's, that's yeah. incredibly unique to take the train from the finish to the start and the start to the finish. I mean, that is absolutely, you know, awesome and unique. Are there, do they, they um, I'm sure they have special trains for that where if they're not regular passenger trains that you're, you're getting on, but, and then you're, you know, sitting next to someone who doesn't even know what you're doing there, but it's, the trains are blacked out, blanked out for the Ingadine, and they're, and they're, they're uh, not in the regular service. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's trains going every 10 minutes, essentially. And right. yeah, cause you have to get 14,000 people through there. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really neat, but they are passenger trains. You know, you you don't feel like, you know, you're still sitting down in a seat except everybody else, kind of like the Berkey, you know, everybody else is carrying their skis and everything and their backpack. And, you know, there's pre-race nerves with some people. And, and then you have like the loud, gregarious American Lumi Experiences group that's making a whole bunch of noise in the, in the train, having a good time in the morning. But um, yeah, then you have things like Muotus uh, Morail, you're taking the cog railway up and you can go sled down. Um, there's so many unique things to do. And you know, we've, I've always tried to end with a little uh, Swiss fondue dinner there or, or rocklet, you know, something traditional after the race. A lot of cheese usually. Okay, so let, let's get to Lumi Experiences and what you're doing now. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you run the world's premier cross-country ski travel company. When I think of cross-country ski travel or destination cross-country ski travel, I think of World Masters from an American point of view. World Masters, maybe World Lobbit races, and then domestically, something like West Yellowstone or yeah. Silver Star. But what you do is quite unique. Uh, you and I, I wouldn't do it now, but we've had talks in the past about some of the things that I've done in Europe that um, 
I thought were amazing opportunities for people who really love that type of adventure. You provide experiences visiting World Cups or World Championships. As a fan, World Loppet trips, other group trips. Can you, uh, self-guided trips? Um, some of your trips include Central European destinations such as Norway, New Zealand, Australia, as well as, not such as. So Central Europe as well as those destinations. Can you tell us about the business and the services that you offer? Totally. Um, yeah, you know, in, in having ski raced and traveled around the world for essentially 10 years, I got to experience so many unique places. But while you're racing, you know, you're, you're doing your morning training, you're coming home, you're having lunch, you're taking a nap, maybe watching Eurosport and doing your afternoon in the gym. And that's essentially it. And so when I retired from ski racing in 2011, I kind of had this idea in the back of my mind that it would be really fun to be able to bring American travelers over to Europe and share this unique European ski experience. And so I actually applied to work for VBT, Vermont Bicycle Touring, based out of Bristol, Vermont, which is right down the road from where I went to college and still had some friends in the area. And basically spent five years working at VBT, um, helping them develop trips, bicycle trips to um, German-speaking countries. That was sort of my specialty within, within VBT. They run trips all over the world. Um, I think they have something like 10 or 15,000 guests a year. So they really have gotten this like active travel experience down to a science. And the and owner- they've, they've been around forever. They, yep. How many employees do you think they have worldwide? I mean, they're-, they're they, they probably have a couple hundred trip leaders around the world. Yeah. So, so you got a lot of good practical experience with this for sure. Exactly. Tons, tons and tons of experience. And uh, at BBT actually, um, the owner at the time, Greg Marston, his, his son Chase skied at Middlebury uh, and Stratton. Um, so there was definitely some like interest in cross-country skiing. So we, when I was at BBT, I helped them launch a series of cross-country ski trips, um, which were really successful um, and a lot of fun to kind of get some winter business in what's normally like a, a, a summer um, organization and they ended up um, getting acquired. VBT was purchased by another organization that really wanted to just focus on the bike trips and so they kind of pushed the ski trips to the side and so when my wife Catherine got a job here in Innsbruck and we moved to Austria I thought you know this is the perfect time for me to reignite this idea to bring Americans over on ski trips and um, the, the first trip, actually, I remember talking to Brian uh, Fish and Caitlin Gregg at an OPA Cup trip in, um, in Seyfeld. In, uh, and basically was talking with Brian and said, hey, you know, what do we need to do to get Americans over here? And uh, thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to get the NNF involved, the National Nordic Foundation. And... Um, essentially, you know, reach out to their donors and offer an experience for people who support cross-country ski racing to be able to have a similar experience as the athletes that they're supporting. So if you're donating money to the NNF, um, 
great cause. Absolutely. Like do that. You know, that funding might go to regional elite group camps, which help bring athletes from around the country together. And it might also go towards funding athlete trips to Europe. And so for me, it seemed like a pretty natural partnership to share this, this world cup experience with ski fans. And, um, I kind of got lost there from, from your initial question, I think, Ian, but, but essentially that first year we, uh, I decided, okay, let's do a trip to the Dolomitenlauf in Austria, which is the Austrian World Open, and we'll pair that with the Seefeld World Cup, which is the following weekend. So these, the guests on the trip can have the opportunity to ski the Dolomitenlauf, and then we went and spent a couple of days in Toblach, and then we watched the, uh, the World Cup in and say, Phil. So can you highlight a trip that you provided that was especially exciting or awesome? I mean, every, every one of them is unique. Right. Um, that first, that first one was, was special. Um, well, Garrett, what, the reason I'm asking you this is I want, I know what you do and I know what it's like over there. And I know what the experience would be like. I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. Yep. And most people don't know the difference between, let's say, the Rockies or New England and the, and the Alps and skiing through the Alps and the, how it's a whole different deal. So totally. I was hoping that in asking this question, you'd be able to give the listeners an idea of what a really good trip would be like. It's like yep. the vision, you know, the, yep. what it might be like as compared to, you know, your first trip or something. But like, just give us a taste of it. Totally. Totally. So... What, what we try to do is in, in, in living here, being a relative local, you know, I, I have all kinds of ski experiences, particularly, you know, when you can put on your skis, ski out your door from your hotel in Seyfeld, for example, you walk right across the street, you have the trailhead right there, and you have 200 kilometers of trails that you can explore. So you know, what's, what I love about skiing in Europe is being able to leave without even a drink belt on and ski to a hut and stop there and have, you know, a coffee or tea um, or a croissant, a little apple strudel and uh, sit outside in the sun and really like experience everything that's around you. You know, there's hundreds of people out on the ski trails in, in Seyfeld, for example, and you're surrounded by this beautiful mountain panorama. Um, so I think, you know, what I, I love, I love the guests on our trips. We have, you know, 15 to 20 people on a trip. We'll usually pick everybody up in Munich. So when you arrive jet lagged, you don't need to worry about, um, having to get a rental car or figure out the train schedule. You hop on the bus. We have some treats for you on the bus. And, you know, we travel down to Lienz to do the, the Dolomitenlauf. Um, our trip leaders are all local. So we have uh, people who really know the area and can share, you know, some language tips and their own personal experiences with the region um, with our travelers. So they're also, you know, oftentimes ski coaches or former racers. So they're great ski waxers. So, you know, when you arrive at the hotel, you know, they're taking all of your skis, waxing them all for you, scraping them, and, you know, your skis are essentially handed to you the next morning before you head to the trail. So you have, you know, brand new wax on your skis. And what I like about it is 
we can, you know, we have two trip leaders. So oftentimes there's one person that might go off with the faster skiers. There's somebody else who might slow stay, stay with the, the beginners. Um, but everybody, you know, can, can kind of ski at their own pace and then maybe arrive at the same hut around the same time, depending on which trail you take. And so you can, even if you're not a skier, there's still walking paths to get to these huts. And so you can still be a part of the trip, part of the experience um, without necessarily being a fast racer or, or, uh, or anything like that. So we cater as much to beginner skiers as we do to elite racers. And I think in talking to our guests, you'll find that everybody enjoys, enjoys the experience. That's something that most, I would say basically no one knows. And that is the Alps are full of what they call winter hiking trails. And they're groomed with a piston bully and they're marked. So these are actually marked groomed hiking trails that they groom with a piston bully. So they get pretty hard. And you, for the most part, you don't need snowshoes or nothing. You just go up there with your shoes and you're walking like hiking through tremendous Alpine scenery in the winter. In addition to, of course, having ski trails everywhere, which is exactly offers a lot of other opportunities. Yep, yep, no question, no question. And then they're all connected, you know, by by these different huts. And and over the years of living here, it's like I figured out the the best place to go for strudel, and this is the best place to go for Kaiserschmarrn, and this is the best place to go for French fries and a beer at the end of the day. So kebabs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's another aspect of being in the Alps that I think is thrilling, and that is it's a different culture with different history, a different history. And when I travel, that's one thing I like to do is I like to learn about the local, about the history of the area and about local culture and something that's unique. For example, in the Dolomites, there's, a, there's a, the, the Ladin people, the Ladin. It's its own language. It's a language that's left over from the Roman Empire. They have their own completely different culture. And when you're in, in the southern Tyrolia, northern Italy, in that in particular region, the, the street signs, transportation signs are generally in German, Italian, and Ladin. And there are Ladin museums, and then you have the Minenkrieg, the, um, the mine wars of the World War I with the basically over Tyrolia. It's a whole aspect of history that makes being there so much more rich and rewarding because you're not just going for a ski and eating some cake and going home but you're immersed in, or you're in Berlin and you look at all these statues everywhere. It's, it's, a, it's a living museum all around you. And the Alps are full of that and all the different Alpine countries. Do you have the ability or is there an interest in your clientele to learn about the Alpine culture in every valley, valley even has its own culture and history. It's so rich and thrilling to learn about. Absolutely. And that's, that's really one of the, that's a great question because it is one of the unique things about the experience here. And, you know, Austria was part of the uh, austro it was essentially the Austro-Hungarian Empire until World War One, And, and at that time, things, you know, really shrunk down to what Austria is today. So, yeah, you know, we, we, um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but um, Planitza, where they're having the 2023 World Championships in Slovenia, is one of my favorite corners of the world, the Julian Alps. Oh, yeah. And essentially, you're right on the Austrian, Italian, and Slovenian border where you're, where you're skiing here. And we, uh, we had a World War I history walking tour last year where we had a local expert who um, took our guests out and there's actually these bunkers like you were talking about from from World War One, and so yeah you can ski out to these trails and then you can you can see this 
Um, one of my favorite skis in the world is in, in Toblock. It's the, the Via Ferrovia. And you ski from Cortina to Toblock through what used to be an old railroad tunnel. And so it's probably a kilometer long and there's lights on the inside of it and they groom this, this trail. And it, you know, you can, because of the public transportation network, you can ski point to point, you know, I think it's 25 K and you know, you take most of the day to do it. Um, but yeah, you're skiing through these, these different parts of the Alps, which is, is really special. Um, so and then, you know, you, one of the most famous peaks in that whole region is called the Tide Sinnen in German. Yep. What is that called in English? I don't even know. Uh, it's the Tre Cine in Italian. Um, the three, the three chimneys, essentially. And so, uh, yeah. Like this would be English. Yep. Yep. Anyway, that 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 the ski. It's twenty-five k's, and people take most of the day for it. Not because it's too, because they're slow, but because the the scenery the entire way is so breathtaking. Why would you rip through it? That's, the, that's what we're talking about is the difference between going for a ski in the Twin Cities or even in Utah. You're out there skiing, and yeah, there's some scenery, you're enjoying it, but out there it's breathtaking. It is absolutely breathtaking. And then if you were to be smart and lucky enough to stop at a cafe somewhere on the way and grab some apushkudu and, and, and a cup of coffee or something, it complements everything you're doing. It, it's, it's an experience, it's not a ski. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think one of my goals in running these trips is, you know, we, we actually, one of the, we do the Dolomitenlauf on like day one or day two, which for a lot of people, all of a sudden, like that's one of the biggest pressure situations. You know, they've been training all year. They want to get their wax right. They want to have a great race. And then all of a sudden, like the race is done and you have the rest of the week to relax and enjoy yourself. And so I love getting people who really do like to focus maybe too much on their wax or whatever to really kind of slow down and, and soak in the, uh, the European ski experience by the end of the week. And, and I, I see a lot of the guest comments that come in afterwards that they really appreciate skiing more and the whole um, experience around skiing after, after one of these trips. So that's definitely something that we try to do as much as we can to uh, incorporate into the trips. We have the Choco Tech team. And one thing I was able to do for a while, because I was paying for it, was take some of my Choco Tech team people to Europe when I had meetings in Europe. So I used to have meetings a week apart, uh, nine days apart in Europe. And I would go over there for the first meetings and then I would meet my, some of my tech team people that I would, I would bring them over as a reward for doing a great job for me. And then I would give them an experience over there and then I would drop off at the airport and go to my other meeting. Um, and I'm not able to do this anymore, but this one year I brought four people over and three of the four people couldn't make it. They had, there was some weather and their flights were delayed and they made it to like Chicago and then thought, you know what? I'm only gonna be over there for like two or three days so it's not worth it. So they went home, which oh, no. blew my mind. And the guy that made it, uh, we went up to Cramontana, a famous resort in Switzerland, and we, we skied cross country in the morning, way up on the plain mort, and then on the Alpine Hill. And the afternoon we went Alpine skiing as it got slush because it was in spring. And I was telling this one guy who made it about the other guys. And they, to my mind, it blew my mind that they actually turned around and went home because it would only be a couple of days. And this person said to me, if I went home right now, this is after a couple hours of skiing and being there, if I went home right now, it would have been worth it, absolutely. 
And that's what I don't think people realize is if you're a, if you like mountains and ski, mountain culture, mountain sports, if you like a culture like that, any of the ones in the Alps where the culture is, in the United States, I think a lot of our mountain towns, we turn the mountain town into a town with mountains and people living in it. You know, we kind of change the, the feeling of it. You know, we have a lot of nice mountain towns, but in Europe, it's, to my mind anyway, in almost every mountain town, the living is in harmony with the mountains and it almost is more beautiful because you can see how the people that live there respect and love the mountains. So their chalets almost beautify the mountain scenery and, and the way that they navigate and kind of live in the mountains, it, it enhances it as compared to makes it worse. And there's just so many aspects if you look for it, that it's thrilling every minute of being there is thrilling. And I don't think that Americans understand that really. Someone might say, well, how come you live in the United States? I love the United States. I, I'm, there are many reasons, but I, I do spend approximately a month and a half in Europe every single year. And I go over there in the right time, once in the summer, once in the fall. And I would not miss that for anything except for a global pandemic, unfortunately. <laughs> this year. Um, but I, is there a way for you to communicate what I'm trying to communicate, you know, like it's special and different and nothing like they've probably ever experienced. And what you're offering is an insider's view to the beauty. Like I spend time with someone in the Alps, they understand things and appreciate things they wouldn't have seen in their own. I think like, like you're saying, you, you have to come over and experience it. You know, it's, it's like your friend who, who came over here and in two hours said, I wouldn't, you know, I would, wouldn't trade this for anything. And uh, yeah, imagine taking those two hours and, and turning that into a 10, 10 day trip where you're experiencing so much. Um, if you've never skied in Europe, especially Central Europe and the Alps, I think, cause you get, you get this, this warm summer sun, but you're at, or some warm winter sun, but you're at such high elevation that you have pretty solid snow certainty. And uh, it really, in my mind, can't, can't be beat. And, you know, that, that is a big part of why I've lived over here for the past four years is, is how special it is to get out and, and ski in the Alps in the winter, to hike in the Alps in the summer. Um, but you really, I don't, I don't think that describing it is, is even possible to some extent. You have to, you really have to be there to, to experience it. There, there are small things like uh, every year, a few times a year, generally, I take a train from Brig to Chamonix. Yep. And that train ride is one of hundreds of train rides that are just it's every minute as far as if you're doing is spectacular. It's not homogenous. Different parts of different things, you know, castles and cliffs and settlements and stuff. But but just as an example, I'm 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 looking out the window like I'm seeing something I've never seen before in my life, and it's the most incredible thing. I'm that way the entire trip. And my wife is the same way, and we're talking about things the entire time, even though I've done that trip, I would say 30 to 40 times at this point. But there are small things that you wouldn't know to recognize. Like, for example, there are settlements way up on mountains and on cliffs that you can't get to without using a gondola, a very primitive old gondola, or a footpath or something. And you think, what are they doing up there? And you see school kids taking the gondola. It's not a gondola, but it's some kind of mountain railway kind of a thing. Down to school every morning and back with their little book, you know, bag and the whole thing. And it's a whole different culture. And think, what are they doing up there? Well. My thinking is during the time of the Black Plague, for example, and the bubonic plague, people said, 
I don't want to get it, so I'm going to live up there. And, and then it turned also into a mountain living where, you know, you have your little alm and your pasture and your sheep and your, I mean, it's just, there are jewels all over the place. And, the, and the, I'm not sure what the word is in English, the Christus that you see all over the place in the mountains. I guess maybe it's Kresh, but you, know, you have yeah. the, the Savior on a cross. Yeah. All over the Alpine countries, the, in the most spectacular fashion, hand-carved or um, the, 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 the springs that you have where if you're on a bike ride, you don't even need to bring water. Just one little teeny water bottle and you just, you can drink in every town or every pass. And like there are so many, tons of so many aspects, the respect that people have for outdoor sportsmen and the acknowledgement they give one another. And I don't know, it's just, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to give this vision because to me, the Alps in any season is going there is holy. And again, someone's like, why do you live in the United States? I love parts of the United States, but I go for a month and a half every year and I will for the rest of my life because that's how amazing it is. And we're in the dumps not being able to go. It's like a great problem to have, you know, like life is good. Yeah, I get that. But, but it's still something we absolutely treasure. And every time we go over, we realize it might be the last time we go for whatever reason. And we use every second. We don't leave a single opportunity. So I just hope that you providing experiences like this, I'm not trying to sell anything for you. I would be the best customer you ever had if I wasn't a trip for you because I would, <laughs> I would enjoy every second of it. That's what I'm saying is I think people are maybe don't understand. I'm sure you have a lot of clientele, but um, it's so attractive and so life-changing. 100, 100%, 100%. And it is, it's, it's like walking into a Nordic paradise. You know, you, you, you walk out your door from the, from the hotel in Seefeld or in, in Toblach or Cavalese where they have the, uh, the Marshalonga and it's a 70 kilometer trail that runs through the valley and connects all these little villages along the way. And you're, you know, you're surrounded by the peaks and, um, makes me want winter. I'm looking forward, uh, Ian, to being able to walk out my door this weekend and, and go do a little skiing yeah. already. So yeah. here's, a, here's a concept. I, I, I've gone to primitive parts of Peru, Dominican, like all over the world, including in Asia. I, I've gone a lot of different places and I love, there are kind of two different types of trips that I take. One is a kind of trip where I'm going somewhere with pretty primitive civilization and then I kind of see the world through their eyes and I'm thinking, wow, and you appreciate the small things and you learn some very basic life lessons from them and you gain a perspective. That's very rewarding and it can be life-changing. What I think people discount is there's another type of travel. And for me, it's the Alps, the Swiss Alps, but the Alps. And when I go over there, it's a reminder of how, what quality of life is and it's a master's education in, um, in living well. Like eating well, traveling very efficiently, having convenience that conveniences like you're describing that are amazing. When you go over there, like I don't watch TV, I don't waste time doing this and that. I'm enjoying every minute of every day. And I'm I'm seizing the day. And and that in itself is something amazing. But on top of that, as a civilization, and I, I'm a blue, I love America, blah blah blah, you know, but there's a lot that we can learn from the way they learn, especially as an outdoorsman. 
And when I go over there and then come back, I, I kind of have a resolution to try to continue living the way I was living when I was there on that trip, like a month a trip or whatever. Like it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a master's degree in how to live better. Are you able to give that vision and, and people to kind of expose themselves to that incredible living when they're with you on your trips? Oh, no question. That's, that's the best part of it is, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you wake up and you have you know, a wellness area at your hotel. And so you can get up and do a little morning yoga. You can then walk into breakfast. And one of my, one of my favorite things to, to have at these European breakfasts is this uh, apple carrot ginger juice. And it's just this like thick smoothie. And as soon as it hits your lips, it's like you, um, you just, it, you feel like it's like healthy, you know? And then you have great coffee and you know, you're right, you're in Italy or you're right next to Italy. And so the, the coffee culture is fantastic. And the, the bread culture, everything's been made that morning. So yeah, the, I mean, the, the food that you're getting there, I think we've talked a lot about the trails already and the huts. Um, and the like you said, a lot of, what's that? The public transportation. I have lived in Innsbruck for four years and I don't own a car. You know? And you don't feel like you need to own a car. It's crazy how efficient it is affordable um, and effective it is. It's unbelievable that it's, everything is so convenient. It's, it's for an American, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Totally, totally. And, and I still, you know, when I take the, I take the train to, to Seyfeld every other day, and I still try to get on the left-hand side of the train because that's the side that gives this beautiful panoramic view of the whole Inn Valley and Innsbruck and the ski jumps and, and everything. And like, regardless of how many times I've seen that view, the weather's different every day. I'm in a different mood every day. And it's, it's, it's always changing. It's always different, but it's always spectacular. If I'm taking a train ride in the Alps, let's say if I take a train ride in most of Germany, you know, I have some long trains I've done there, or in the United States, you know, long travel. I'm generally watching a movie on my iPad. I would not dream of doing that over there. I would not dream of doing that in the Alps. Even if it's a, you know, a train like the Chamonix that I've done 30 to 40 times, I would not dream of doing that for one minute. That's have, you taken, have you taken the train from Zurich to, to San Moritz for the Engadin? Uh, not for the Indian, but I've done that train ride, yes. You have done that train ride. Yeah, that's, that's a UNESCO World Heritage train. And uh, it's, it goes over these, you know, bridges and through tunnels. And there's one point where the train actually, like, circles around itself to, on, to gain On a bridge. You're talking um, about circles on the bridge. That's a very famous. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's a neat one. And then on that same train ride, uh, there's also a point where you can get on the train with a sled and take it to the next stop and then sled back down to the to the previous stop where you where you used to be. So that's that's actually one of the things that we try to include on every trip is some sort of lift serve sledding. So you're taking a chairlift up or you're taking a gondola up and you're sledding down the mountain and everybody that finishes is like, oh my gosh, I you know, haven't felt like this since I was a kid. You wouldn't necessarily need to do this. Um, people wouldn't necessarily have to do this because they're with you. But you can also do a point-to-point -point ski using the trains and even do a point-to-point -point ski changing hotels. Like you can ski from one valley to another if you want to ski that far and check your luggage with the train so that when you get there, 
you're, you're in business. Or another aspect is you also have trains that have glass windows because it's so spectacular. Why would you have a steel roof or yep. aluminum roof? Yep. It's, it's a, you also have, of course, dining cars and trains and a dining cart. And it's just a whole different experience. Yep. The trains alone are fantastic and fascinating to me. Oh yeah, I think in most of Central Europe, I don't, I can't think of any cross-country destinations where you'd need to rent a car. You no. know, there's some that you can maybe get to a little bit faster. And obviously, when when I was racing with the U.S. team, we'd take vans everywhere. But living here now and having skiing be just more part of my lifestyle, um, it's it's relaxed. You get up in the morning and you you take the train, you do your ski, you have lunch, and maybe you're out and gone all day. Um, but you don't even realize, you know, I, I forget about training plans. And when I think back now to like, you know, what a two hour ski was when I was racing, now it's like, oh, if I'm putting my skis on and going for a ski, I'm, I'm out there all day. I maybe cover as much ground over the course of the whole day as I would in an hour normally, but it's, it's just, you know, you're stopping along the way, relaxing, enjoying the whole experience. Yeah. So, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you this opportunity. How do people sign up or get more information on Lumi experiences? LumiExperiences.com is the uh, is the website. Like you said, we have trips that you know are spectator trips to to World Cups. Um, we do trips to World Lopets. Self guided trips are one that's become increasingly popular. So a family will come and maybe they don't want to do a trip with a different group, but they just want to spend time together. They'll they'll come over and um, you know we'll put together an itinerary for them, kind of customized to people's abilities and what they want to experience while they're here. Um, so you can find, you know, all the different trips that we have on the website, lumiexperiences.com. It's called L-U-M-I. Um, Lumi actually is the, uh, the Finnish word for snow. So um, it has a little bit of a, a winter connotation there and it's essentially snow or winter, winter trips. And, you know, it's not just travel. But it's it's all of the experiences, Ian, like we've just been talking about. So LumiExperiences.com. So self-guided trips, are those popular? They are. They are. Yep. Yep. The reason I'm asking. Yep. I've I've been to Switzerland 65 times now. I, I spent a lot of time over there. And I've yep. you know I've done a lot of traveling, um, obviously in the Alps. If if I were to do, if I were to recommend a self-guided trip to someone, let's say they say, oh, I want to go to Zermatt, which would be a pretty, I could tell you where to find Edelweiss on a few different hikes, exactly yep. where, because it grows in the same place every year and yep. when, to, when to find it. I could, I could tell you where you're going to find Steinbock. Yep. I could tell you where to go to see black neck goats. I could tell you where, you know, like basically every little thing and there's a bunch of little tips as to what train to sit on. And as you, as you pointed out, when you're going to Seyfeld, what side of the train to sit on, what car to sit in, how to buy your ticket, which, which automat to use if you're not going to stand in line. Like there are, not to mention the restaurants and, you know, other tips, like um, is it going to get cold up top because the, the sun at this particular time gets, you know, behind the mountain peak and it drops 30 degrees in two hours, an hour, half an hour. You know, there's like, there's so much information which would turn a trip into, if I went back there, I would do it this way. <laughs> you know, that kind of a post-trip analysis to yep. that was the best trip of my life. And we knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. And it was so spectacular. You know, we really squeeze every bit of juice out of that apple. You know what I mean? 
Yep. I, I hope they're popular because I, I hope that people don't discount expertise and experience that you can give, which would greatly enrich their experience. Oh, you know, if you only have a 10 days to travel, which would be, you know, a weekend on, on either side. And Americans, you know, we're talking about lifestyle in the U.S. versus in, in Europe. It's not uncommon for Americans to have 10 vacation days a year. And if you want to make the most out of those vacation days, um, that's one of the things we're providing is, is the opportunity to get off the plane when you arrive in Munich and know that you are seeing and having the best possible experience along the way between there and when you get on the train or the plane in, in Verona, Italy to fly back home at the end of the trip. You know, you're not doubling up on days. Maybe if you had such a great experience one day, you could do that again because you have that flexibility as, as a self-guided trip. But um, yeah, we're really, you know, it is, it is small groups. It's not necessarily just individuals. It's, it's small groups and families that are, that are coming over and doing that. We've had self-guided groups as large as 14. And so for a group like that, we might get a local guide that meets them when they first arrive and does like a little walk through the town. Um, the the uh, World War One tour in Slovenia, for example, was was with a, a local guide with a group of 14 people that were essentially traveling on their own, but we connected them with locals where it where it made sense to enhance their experience. Um, You're yeah. fluent in German. You've spoken German in Switzerland. You've spoken German in Austria and Germany. There are different dialects, um, not just accents, but different dialects. Speaking German must make you much more effective at what you do. It helps immensely. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to create those relationships with, with people. Even when we're in Italy, like you said, the majority of South Tyrol speaks German natively. So when I'm talking to our hotels and meeting with them in person, um, recruiting trip leaders, it's all in German. And it, it gets us into some, some unique doors that I don't think would open otherwise. Yep. I think another aspect is, you know, pretty much everyone in, pretty much everyone in Europe speaks English decently. There's yep. some valleys with, you know, maybe some people have been there for a few generations that might not so much, but but it's not what it's about. To me, when you speak their language, you get an insight into the culture and you develop relationships that you wouldn't have otherwise. So to me, it's a huge advantage and it offers a lot of opportunities to speak the language well like that. You, you learn yeah. things that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. You gain understanding, not to mention relationships. Yeah, and you, I mean, speaking of relationships and, uh, and language, I mean, you, you speak fluent German as well and it's obviously, I imagine it helps you with your work with Toko and uh, and traveling in the ski world and everything. So I mean, if there's if there's any if there are any kids or you know uh, younger ski racers listening to this podcast, you know if there's an opportunity to learn a foreign language, absolutely. I feel like you have to do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, are you planning? You live in Innsbruck. Yeah. Are you are you planning on staying there for the foreseeable future? We don't have any plans to return home at this point. Our visa is still valid for over another year and we have the option to renew that when, when we want to. So um, at this point, you know, this is, Innsbruck is home. Um, we had a great four months at the beginning of COVID uh, in Minneapolis and Maine um, with family back there. We were kind of coincidentally there for the, for the Minneapolis World Cup um, and then ended up just staying there. But yeah, we're, um, my wife Catherine and I plan to stick around here um, yeah, for the foreseeable future. Have you got any uh, designs or on dual citizenship? 
if you're there long enough with your Aufenthaltsgenehmigung. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we can essentially, yeah, that, that's what, that's the next hurdle we would jump over in a year is, is not dual citizenship, but it's essentially the equivalent to a green card in Austria, which gives us the opportunity to, to live here or live in the U.S. and, and move back and forth more or less freely. I figured you already had that. So you're on a visa. You don't have an Aufenthaltsgenehmigung, your green card? Uh, it is a, it is, it's a, yeah, three-year Aufenthaltsgenehmigung oh. right now. Oh. Yeah. And then it's, and then it's another, you know, another EU related thing in, in a year. Oh, super. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, some different things now, if that works for you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you what your favorite Toco glove model is and why. I've been the designer since the inception of Toco gloves, and I'm always interested in hearing this. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I love all of the different Toco gloves I've had. Um, my favorite is the uh, the Thermo fleece. Um, I like all of them because I can just wash them. My hands tend to uh, sweat a lot when I'm skiing. Um, so I can just toss them in the washer. The, that thermal fleece, um, and I think it has some kind of a wind protector in there even. It keeps my, hands, yeah. keeps my hands really warm, dry, um, can wash them afterwards. They, uh, they are great for, for wiping your nose. <laughs> Um, but really like they, I, I pretty much wear those if it's, if it's 32 degrees all the way down to negative 10, you know, it's such a wide range. Yeah. Love them. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Garrett, um, I want to ask you three questions that are kind of more personal, but I think interesting and hopefully that people enjoy this information. What do you know now that you wish that you had known when you were 18? <clears throat> Um, that's a, that's a really good question. There's, there's not a whole lot, actually. I think the fact that, you know, life, life goes on and, uh, you know, life, life's moves fast. I'm over, I think I'm 37 now. And so double 18 essentially. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing just how fast time Flies. The fact that you know it was ten years ago that I was ski racing, um, and it feels like it was basically just yesterday. So, time moves fast. Enjoy every minute. Um, it's it's pretty pretty simple, but uh, it's something I'm learning every day. When I met you, we were speaking German with one another quite often, and you were fascinated by life in the German speaking region of the Alps. And to me, fast forwarding to now and looking at what you do, where you live, kind of your life, it makes me feel really happy because it seems to me you are living your dream. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. I have to think that, that everything has gone the way that you wanted to go. You've had some fortune for sure, but you've also chosen this. You left your life as a, as a, skilled and successful World Cup skier who was on the way up really fast. Like I said, I think you would have been in the red group regularly in a short time. You left that for this. And I think you don't have a day of regret because you're living your dream. Absolutely. No question. Yep. Sometimes we're faced with choices that aren't good and bad, but rather best, better and best. Yep. Yep. Uh, it seems to me this applies to you. No question. I mean, I, I, uh, 
you know, I, I worked at VBT for five years and then had an opportunity to coach the Green Mountain Valley School for a year. And that was like, if, for me to come back to the ski world after having spent, you know, a year work or five years working in, in tourism travel and more of a corporate culture to some extent, um, for as much as a bicycle tour company in Vermont can be corporate. Um, and it was so nice to get back into the ski world. And that to a big extent was, was essentially my dream job. And I think the only thing that really could have taken me away from that was the opportunity to move to Europe. And when Catherine got a job offer over here, um, it was, we, we talked about it and basically decided, yeah, it's, it's something that we can't really pass up in life. Um, so yeah, like you said, moving from one fantastic opportunity, ski racing at BBT, at GMVS here in Austria, um, running, running a travel company and sharing, sharing these European ski experiences for me is, is really, is really special. Just for clarity, I don't think you would have given up that job to move to Europe if you were living in Belgium. No, that's true. I should say <laughs> giving up that job is to move to move into Innsbruck in, in the heart of the Alps was was uh, a lot easier. Yeah, yeah I think it's probably a Thank you. important yep. point to make. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay, what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? You know, I... I don't know that there's a whole lot. I feel like I'm pretty, pretty open and usually like to share my opinion on, on things, whatever's going on. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily know that there's, that there's a whole lot. I, um, through COVID have really enjoyed cooking, cooking homemade pizza. Our, our neighbor here in Innsbruck is a, is a pizza chef at the best Italian restaurant in town. So I've been getting into uh, my pizza recipes and uh, making, making good food. I think at, at the time when I was ski racing, it's very much more into, uh, you know, getting as many calories as I probably could into me and uh, having spent, you know, five years living in Vermont with fresh vegetables right outside my door. Um, Catherine's a wonderful cook and I've really enjoyed getting more into cooking good food, eating good food and, uh, maybe enjoying some of the, some of the finer things in life that I didn't really have in my mind when I was ski racing. So here's a question for you. When we met, you spoke German with a Swiss accent. Yeah. You've been living in Tyrolia for quite a while now. Um, the accent there is different from Germany. Yep. And very different from Switzerland. I haven't heard enough. You, you haven't really spoken any German. Uh, what's your accent now? Do you have a Tyrolian accent? That's a really funny question. Yes. Um, so, so when I was living in Switzerland, it was the year 2000 before the internet really existed. And so I was essentially immersed 100% in German, but specifically Swiss German, which as you know, is this totally different dialect than, than regular German. Um, and then now living in Tyrol, it's, it's, I still haven't been able to get rid of my Swiss German accent. So I'm, I'm speaking high German with the Swiss German accent. There's a few Tyrolean words that I'll use often. Um, I joke with people now that uh, my German is somewhere like Vorarlberg, which is the, the village or the, the region between Tyrol and Switzerland. So I, I, you know, I've had people ask me if I come from Vorarlberg. Um, 
because my accent it sort of has this Tyrolean Swiss mix. So yeah, I haven't haven't been able to get rid of the Swiss, but uh, I'm not quite Tyrolean yet either. Languages and accents are really fascinating to me. One thing that is I didn't notice this until later, <laughs> but I think you'll find you'll get a kick out of this. I speak Spanish fluently. Mm. I learned Spanish after I learned German. Yep. And you know, the brain works in funny ways, depends on what age you were when you learn things and so on. But as it turns out, if I have an accent in Spanish, it's not an American accent, it is a German <laughs> accent. And, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not upset about it because as it turns out, a lot of Spanish speaking Latin America, they don't like Americans that much. Yep. And everyone makes the assumption that I'm German and they love me. <laughs> it's really great. They're positive that I'm German because I have a, I have a slight German accent my, when I speak Spanish. They're positive I'm German. They're always telling me how great my Spanish is. And, you know, one of my friends might tell me United States are like, no, 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 no. And, and, and they say, well, you have a German accent. And I say, yeah, but, you know, we speak German at home. My wife's German. They're like, oh, you're German. You're German. And they love oh, Germans man. over there. So it's a it. funny thing. Something as slight as a, something as small as a, even a slight accent can really affect how people perceive you. Um, so that's one reason I ask, because it's quite interesting. Yep, totally. That, that, that's a great question, but yeah, yeah. I love, I love the, the, that Spanish anecdote too. That's yeah. really funny. Yeah. yeah. We were in, uh, in Poland, and there's an area of Poland, the northern part, um, Pomerania. Okay. And we were there, and we were speaking German, and people hate Germans there because basically that area the, of Poland was, was kicked like a football between Germany and Russia for, for decades and decades and decades. And they hate Germans there, even though it's right next to Berlin. And I went to a, 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 the um, Casa, the, the person at the... Um, Cash register. <laughs> register kind of a thing. And I'm yeah. asking him how to take the, the train to downtown because it wasn't really clear. And she looked at me and she said, no German, no German. <laughs> and I figured it was right on the border of Germany. So, and everyone obviously spoke German there. So I was just speaking German with her. So I switched to English and then she was a little nicer to me. But for the rest of the time in, in uh, this area in Poland, we didn't speak a word of German because everyone hates Germans there. Wow. <laughs> There's some sensitivities that, that if you're not there and you don't have the language talent, you don't get this level of understanding, which opens the world up to you. You know, it's fascinating. So yeah. I knew you'd appreciate that. Totally. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. It doesn't surprise me at all. And it's, it's fun, you know, to travel the world and to see it's things aren't as, as, uh, as black and white as, as country borders even, you know, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, here's, here's another question for you. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? You know, the, um, there's, there's one in, in Latin that I feel like um, kind of got me through ski racing at different points. Um, mensano e compore santo, uh, a sound mind in a sound body. And uh, I feel like that's a nice way to lead life is to, you know, make sure that you're getting outside, exploring, exercising, and, you know, enriching your body, but then also at the same time, you know, whether it's learning new languages or, or traveling or learning anything really is, is, uh, keeping, keeping your mind fresh. Um, when we moved here to Austria, I got my master's in, in business at the university here. And 
having not been to school in 10 years or sat in a classroom or whatever, spending two years doing that was, was really enriching for me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's maybe it. Sound mind and sound body. Um, I like that. Yeah. I think that defines you pretty well. Um, if, if I were to try to describe some you, like the one unique aspect of you in a small way, I would say something we have in common and that is, you seem to be a lifelong learner to me. You're not only very curious, but you take advantage of learning opportunities and you're constantly learning. And I think that's a really important, at least to me, it's an important characteristic to have. It'll bless your life for your entire life. And life is more interesting if you're constantly learning and, and so on and, and you're and exploring. And that's something that I really enjoy about you is you're constantly learning, exploring, you're curious, but your curiosity doesn't stop at getting curious you satisfy your curiosity by learning. And uh, I think that's a really important characteristic to having a high quality life. Totally, I appreciate that, Ian. And I, I, I compliment you and, and all of the, uh, the TOCO educational videos and everything that you do. I feel like you're, you know, you're, you're trying to educate the, you know, the ski world. You're not just talking about the, great, the latest wax and how it's really fast, but you're talking about how to apply it and, and you're really sharing, sharing knowledge not just, you know, obviously with the entire ski community through the, the TOCO videos, but also through the, you know, the team of um, TOCO representatives that you have. I think back to the time when, you know, we'd, we'd go and sit in the, uh, I forget the name of the inn, it's probably in, uh, in West Yellowstone, and you'd, you know, you'd introduce all of the latest products and, and the, the great, you know, the aspects to each one of them that, are, are important for people to know. And so, yeah, the, the education, the education dissemination, I think is, is uh, really great what you're, what you're doing with TOCO. And it also reflects what Brian Fish is doing with, with the U.S. ski team now with their uh, level 200 curriculum. And um, yeah, there is, there is really something to be said for um, educating yourself and also sharing, sharing interesting things with other people. So thank you for the, the work you do with TOCO and, and all the videos and, uh, um, hints and stuff you you give to people. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, honestly, that's just a reflection of, I think, yours and my attitude about life. I'm like that in every aspect of life. And clearly, Toko gives me, I have a, a passion for ski waxing and for physiology and, and, you know, all the different aspects of physics. I love physics. But the reality is, I'm the same way in all these other aspects of like history, languages, culture. I go to Quito, Ecuador. I hire a local guy to teach me about the history of the area and then what's different about Quito than other towns, like the local culture, for example. Mm -hmm. Family vacation, that's what we'll do on our family vacation is everywhere we go, we do that. And I think yep. that it's, you, you're the same way, obviously. And I think um, it just enriches your life to live that way. And I, I enjoy that about you very much. You're, you're curious to the point that you, like if you're in a run, I bet if you were to walk, run by a sign or a, what they call in German a Denkmal, like a remembrance, you wouldn't run past it more than once anyway, without going back and saying, okay, now what's this all about and learn about it. Uh -huh. That's an important characteristic to have, I think, to have a quality life. Absolutely, no question, no question. To be part of the, the surroundings, everything around you. Yep, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Anyway, cool, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to connect with you on a personal level today, as well as, uh, of course, talk about Lumi experiences and a little bit about Toko and, and, and just kind of present our conversation to the ski community, which I know is going to be popular.
but uh, you've always been one of my favorite people and, and I'm glad that we've been able to connect like this again. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Ian. I appreciate you putting this one particularly together, but I, you know, in looking at your whole list of people that you've interviewed, I feel like you have such a who's who of cross-country skiers in the U.S. Um, that you've been able to interview through this process. So I, I feel honored to be a part of it. Thank you very much for uh, putting together the whole podcast series and uh, for including me on it. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, totally.